brought to you by Penguin. I hate writing, which is unfortunate given my career. Hello and welcome to the award-winning Penguin podcast with me, Nihal Arthanaika. This is the place where our supremely talented authors choose a handful of objects that have inspired their work. Now, today, my guest is a columnist for The Guardian, a best-selling author and a Labour Party activist. His third book, This Land, The Story of a Movement, looks at the left's last attempt to change everything and how it went... I think we can all safely say disastrously wrong when last year Jeremy Corbyn led the Labour Party to its worst electoral defeat since 1935. That's a downbeat way to introduce Owen Jones, but uh, Owen, welcome nevertheless. I know, I, I know. I know. <laughs> Already rocking in the fetal position, dribbling. <laughs> Blimey. Do you slow down for car crashes, as Alan Partridge once put it? I know, but I was fired by the Samaritans, uh, as you can hear, after that, uh, after that introduction. Um, you were heavily invested in a vision of the future you wanted to see. When that fell apart, what was your emotional response to that? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to put into words how devastated I was. My family, for many generations, have been involved in in fighting for what you could call socialism in inverted quotes I was taken to rallies with miners leaders like Scargill doing these thundering speeches as I was strapped to my dad's chest yeah so I mean it's so ingrained in you know my sense of identity as well and and my, my family's sense of identity so yeah on the 12th of December at 10 o'clock when that exit poll uh came it felt but you know my dad died nearly three years ago and I'd only compare the sense of loss and bereavement to that to be honest I mean it was uh you know I know sometimes people think about the left that it's this intellectual airy-fairy exercise but it's never been that for me I spend a lot of time traveling the country talking to people whose lives are really hard so then when you think people who I think make those those lives even harder have a massive whopping majority and the beliefs that I fought for are going to face crushing blows in the aftermath of that defeat. Yeah, all of that makes it, yeah, it's terrible, terrible. It's difficult to explain how terrible that is. So then how quickly after that December evening did you decide that you wanted to pour over it again, to go back some five years, actually in certain chapters of the book, even further back, to look at what led to it? How quickly did you make that decision? Uh, the way it panned out actually was I've, I've got this other book which has been delayed called The Alternative and How We Build It, which probably sounds like satire at the moment, but it will be a very <laughs> optimistic book. Um, and it had a section on Britain and I met up with my editor in January uh, and he said, I think that needs a bit of a rewrite. So what we decided is actually just to take that out and turn it into a into a book purely about the rise and fall of the Corbyn project as a kind of bridge then. So then I've kind of looked over in painful detail what happened. So then I can write another book, which is far more optimistic and hopeful. You know, for me, therefore, it's important to say why I think it did go wrong. And the way to do that wasn't just to go, the establishment crushed it. I do think the Labour Party under Corbyn faced formidable, unprecedented challenge for a leader of the opposition, both from within his own party and from outside the press and so on. But if you just 
say that, then you've got a fatalistic conclusion. This will always end in failure. So that meant I had to look at the mistakes, what they got wrong. And I tried to, I, from the beginning, I was like, whatever I'm told, I'll just, I'll put in. I'm not, I'm not going to cover stuff up because I think it's inconvenient or it's going to upset people I've been close to, which is what I have done. That's how I saw it. I saw when I first, it was suggested, I felt, oh my words, having to go through this trauma in the aftermath you know, when it's still raw, it's going to be, it's going to be grim. But I thought actually it was important. You were right there. I mean, you're literally, we're less than a year now since it happened mm -hmm. now. But of course, in order for us to get to this stage where I'm holding this book in front of me, it has gone through various processes way before that. So how did you maintain a distance where none exists? the way events are often seen in the immediate aftermath can be quite different from how they seem 20 years later because people can take the longer view and they can also look at what happened in the following years. Um, and that often gives people a different, a different approach. Um, so all I could do is spend my time just interviewing everyone involved, which is what I did. I mean, I interviewed, blimey. 150-odd <laughs> people. 150-odd people, yeah. The one thing I was taught, studying history is you often have to apply skepticism to the genre known as memoir. That is in the immediate aftermath of a terrible defeat, what people are tending to do is to defend their own reputations and often redirect blame to other people. What you're being told by people is, is often quite selective. So what you have to do is then you have to speak to as many people as possible and compare their accounts, see what's consistent and what's not. History is always revised. People have different approaches. New evidence, of course, arises. Uh, the people who were involved over the years may reveal things they didn't reveal in the immediate aftermath. That is all true. But in terms of speaking to people across various factions, both within the leadership, but also outside the leadership, you know, I spoke, I interviewed Peter Mandelson to John McDonnell. Mm. I mean, it was a broad range of people. Yeah, that's, that's really a broad range. It's, of it's quite, it's definitely the broad church of the Labour Party there in action. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, definitely that's that. I think it is, I think it's, it's raw and honest. It's not, I've not tried to be selective at all. I really have just written what what the evidence directed me to do, even if that meant upsetting people. Hmm. Do you think it would upset Jeremy Corbyn? Aspects of what you've said about of course. dysfunction? Oh, of course, yeah. I mean, what I've done in that book is uh, be honest about his strengths and his, his weaknesses and his failings. You know, when he's portrayed as this demagogic, extremist, terrorist lover, and then they saw this, this guy didn't really come across like that at all. That helped, I think, in 2017, people w were drawn to him. But but equally, that was his big downfall because he was pathologically averse to conflict. What he'd do is often shut down, go AWOL, not make difficult decisions. And, and leadership, ultimately, partly, is part, it's, it's, it's about tough decisions. And why are they tough? Because they involve conflict. One of his great stories is he was someone who could withstand huge amounts of pressure. And I think few people would have managed to get through the amount of pressure he was under. But he when when it came to people disagreeing on things like Brexit, he found that difficult to manage. I I doubt he'd like to read that in print. You know, everyone who knows him thinks that to be true. Uh, I don't think anyone would dissent from it privately, honestly, at all. 
It was just me telling the truth as I saw it. It was based on what people actually said. And there were good things about him, but there were also things which, you know, who likes to read criticism? Mm. Well, as Gloria Steinem once said, the truth will set you free, but before that it will piss you off. Yeah, very eloquent as ever from Gloria Steinem. <laughs> yeah, it's very eloquent, but, you know, straight to the point, and it does make sense, uh, certainly in the context of what we're talking about here. Now let's get into object number one, because this is all about you bringing your objects to us and we finding out more about your creative process. This is uh, objects of a feline nature, I believe. Yeah, my, my two cats are very... Uh, have a very big role in my life. They're named Keir after Keir Hardy, though lots of people know who <laughs> know, <right. laughs> aren't aware of Labour history. He was the first leader of the Labour Party. And Keir Starmer, who's also named after Keir Hardy. Yeah, and uh, and the other one is Rickman, named after named after Alan Rickman. My partner's not political, but is an actor and and therefore we respectively had to, had a go at choosing a cat name. They're right as best friends, cats. I hate writing, which is unfortunate given my career. Yes. What a thing to choose to do if you hate doing it. Why do you hate writing? I think lots of writers hate writing, actually. I think you'd be surprised. Well, I don't know. You write as well, don't you? So, I mean. Yeah, well, I'm trying to write a book at the moment and I'm hating the process of it. There you go. Well, you're again another writer who doesn't like writing. Yeah, I mean, I don't like the solitude. I don't like being stuck in my own thoughts. I like, I like, I like chatting to people. So, interviewing people, that's fine. I like doing that. So that whole process. And when you finish it, there's that sense of satisfaction sometimes. <laughs> Often what I'll do is I'll I'll sit tapping and uh, one of the cats will come and snuggle up. And um and then uh, yeah, they're they're very integral to the writing process. So I dedicated the book to both of them. The cats don't care. They say, don't they, that uh, dogs have owners and cats have staff. Yeah. Right. So in that respect, are they expecting you to, you know, Daddy Owen has got to sort it out, right? I want something. I want to hang around with him. Stop writing. Well, I mean, they're Burmese cats. They don't like solitude. They follow you about everywhere, but they always want to snuggle up. They do often want to chat. They're very chatty cats. They are often very distracting, but I, I've got a very bad concentration span anyway, <laughs> again, which is not that good for my for my career choice but uh yeah but i think every person who's a writer i think who likes cats that is i think cat cats are very integral to the writing to the writing process do they help you de-stress not from writing but you know you can't help but notice anyone that follows you on social media that every morning you will you know click open your twitter app And it's not as if you're going to be hit with a deluge of, gosh, I love you, Owen. I mean, there's quite a bit of vitriol out there, isn't there? I'm I'm currently trending on Twitter this very second because of a column I've written. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, most people are. Most most of the stuff I get is perfectly fine. You know, you get these tribes on Twitter who, well, they have their subsections who are very angry. Uh, I mean, I often get, you know, the worst stuff I get is from the far right, obviously. In real life, I don't get this. Real, real life people just come up to me and really nice. I, I don't get. You have been threatened. Than, you have been threatened. Well, I've been, public, yeah, I've been, beat, I've been beaten. I've been beaten by, up uh, yes. by, by a Nazi. But other than you know the times I, that I've had far right extremists, other than that time on my birthday, where to be fair, a far right extremist beat me up and was sent to prison. I mean, some people come up to me and go, I don't always agree with everything you say, but but no, I it's, you know on Twitter I definitely get people going. But in real life, not so much. But yeah, cats definitely help de-stress. 
Do you get a buzz from trending on Twitter? Uh, no, I don't. No, not at all. You know, I never wanted to be. But a doesn't ro- it feed into the machine as such that you no. know whether it be on the right or whether it be on the left is actually as long as you're trending, then you're relevant. As long as you're relevant, that there's there's a way of monetizing that relevance. I'd never wanted to be relevant for relevance sake. I mean, I didn't want to be a writer. I, I, I was someone who have has very strong opinions, and I wanted to fight for the things I believed in, and I've always tried to find ways to to fight for those ideas but that's why that's the reason I do what I do I've always had um conflicted opinions about having a profile because I'd never wanted one and it wasn't like I was like I want to be a famous writer I wrote a book about 10 years ago called Charles the demonization of the working class which got rejected from pretty much every publishing house and then a small that's the publish- first time I interviewed you on the BBC it was indeed. network I do remember that it was not not long after it came out nearly a decade ago that'll make us both feel old yes I thought that book I don't know you write a book you don't expect it to do that well necessarily and then I remember it just blew up in a, in a way I I would never have anticipated because I think people wanted to talk about class at the time because there wasn't really a conversation about it anymore so so no I mean I, I, I don't a lot of this I mean trending especially with people are just being angry I mean the the reason I'm trending at the moment is because of a column I've written where people have just read the headline and they're clearly just not reading the piece how can it not have an effect on you well I mean partly I've turned my notifications off to only people I follow so I, can, I have to dip in consciously and because I was trending I did dip in and a lot of it is just people screaming and no I don't look at that and enjoy it I find it so tedious why wouldn't you become an MP? And because I'd, I'd, I'd really hate it, I think. You know, I could think of two ex-journalists who become politicians. One's Michael Gove and the other's the Prime Minister. And I'm not sure either of those are, are great exemplars of that particular course. Part of my job is I have to go into Westminster now and then. Uh, you know, I have to go to the House of Commons. I have to meet people in bars around. But I try and avoid it as much as possible because I, I, I actually feel my heart sink the closer I get to SW1. Um, I think it's a terrible place, really awful place. Not something I want to be part of. But changing the world comes from changing the law, doesn't it? And changing the law originates in the House of Commons and in the House of Lords. To really affect change, you need to be at the top table, don't you? That is the top table. Uh, well, as Tony Benn said when he stood down as an MP after decades of being a member of parliament, that he was le- leaving um, the House of Commons to spend more time in politics. I th- you know, I think I think it's this very one-dimensional view people often have of politics is this soap opera in Westminster, and and that's how political reporting often is in this oh, country, without doubt. Yeah, you know, is who's up, who's down, who's been sidelined, who's you know rising up the ranks, who's out of favour. Um, you know, it's all these anonymous briefings based on who's, you know, what's going on here or that. And it's so divorced from, from, from actually what I'd say politics is about, which is about grand social forces. It's about, you know, the social and economic context that defines people's lives in this country. And I just think, I think it's very one dimensional to think politics is just about what happens that, you know, I'm involved in also, you know, I, you know, everything from a health organized, the, anti-Trump demos to 
anti-fascist demonstrations, which is one of the reasons the far right uh, are not my biggest fan. Um, so, I, you know, I, I well, think... you can wear that as a badge of honour. Yeah, yeah, it's not, not something I'm ashamed of, uh, <laughs> though the consequences are tedious, to say the That's least. That's very true. Um, I like mobilising people. I like getting people engaged in politics. The best thing for me in the world is when younger people come up to me and say, your books are why I got involved in politics or interested in politics or my videos, my articles. Let's go to your second object, Owen. And that's a photo. Tell us about this photo. Yeah, so a photo of my photo of my dad's and me uh, not long before my dad died, both with our clenched fists. And it, is that yeah, I suppose it's just because it's that reminder of um, that kind of family heritage that the things that I fight for. Uh, you know, like I'm not a Trotskyist. My dad was a Trotskyist, but you know, I'm I, I'm obviously a fake admitted socialist. And you know, my dad's passion about things. I mean, you know, I ended up doing American history at university, which is funny because people often think the left is, they're just kind of, the left's anti-American. But my dad loved American history and culture. He'd often sit in the living room listening to the blues. And so I inherited a lot, you know, my dad's commitment to the left and to fighting for left-wing ideas and also his interest in American history and culture. But, But funny enough, I think both my folks were worried that I'd end up, as they saw it, maybe making my dad's mistakes because... My dad committed his whole life to the left and, it, you know, the, the revolution didn't happen, as you've probably noticed. So there was that sense of if only he'd, you know, maybe become an academic. And I think they were keen that I did that. And, you know, he grew up as an only child in this Welsh Methodist household. He only started learning English when he was six. So he comes from this different universe for me. Uh, obviously, I've, you know, inherited his political commitment. How was he... And your mother about you going to Oxford University. Um, proud, obviously, I can imagine. But were there any misgivings about going into the heart of the establishment like that? They were more worried when I ended up working in Parliament for John McDonnell, funny enough, in 2005. They were like, no, you'll be sucked into the establishment. Parliament has this terrible impact on people. It, you know, turns them into these, you know, political hacks and you'll be sucked into the Labour Party at the time, you know, and, and all the rest of it. Um, I think, no, Oxford, I think they're proud. I think... Whenever they came with me, my dad was kind of in awe of Oxford. He thought it was a fascinating place. You know, I mean, I found it odd because I, I didn't, I hadn't met anyone from private school before I went to Oxford. So it was definitely this huge culture shock. And I think my dad's, when he came and met people, I suppose we'd have probably have considered caricatures, uh, some of whom are now Tory MPs. <laughs> yeah, he was, he was he was very proud. I think I think they were more like, oh, duh, why, why don't go to Parliament? No. That was the issue, right? That was the thing they were most worried about. Let's uh, let's get on to your next object, Owen, which is uh, a novel. Tell us about this novel by Alan Hollinghurst and why this had to be one of your objects. So this is The Line of Beauty by Alan Hollinghurst. And I, I, it's a beautiful book. He's a beautiful writer. He spends years writing each book. Um, and it's, it's a book set in the 1980s, um, it's about this you know, basically young gay guy who le- who leaves Oxford and ends up living uh, with his uh, friend's dad, who's a Tory MP, in the early eighties. And and the book, I mean, it's quite from my perspective, it's kind of kind of lots of horror in it. It's about Thatcherism and it's high Thatcherism. Thatcherism, it's most triumphant. It's obviously about you know in terms of what gay people went through in the nineteen eighties. Obviously, you can't talk about the gay experience without the HIV AIDS p- pandemic, which ravaged communities of 
gay and bisexual men in the 1980s. So I think it was just, you know, that whole kind of, you know, my politics are so defined against Thatcherism. Thatcher was this... If you're, if, you're, if you're naughty, Margaret Thatcher will come and get you. <laughs> I think there was that well, sense. She was, the... she was known as Margaret Thatcher, the milk snatcher, before she became prime minister. She absolutely was. I mean, that's the yeah. thing. You know, I, mean, I, I grew up, this sense of Thatcher was, was a very, very bad thing. And, you know, again, with my family, it was a sense of there was this civil war in Britain, which was a peaceful civil war, except, you know, it fled and things like the minor strike. But, but they were on the losing side and they got smashed. And reading a book, which was set on the on the winning side, it was about you know Thatcherism in all its glory and triumph. I, I just think it's a fa- it's a beautiful written book, and it's it's kind of forces me people like me to confront a period. I think we you know for me the struggle against Thatcherism and the struggle as a gay person for LGBTQ rights is so into- so 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 much part of what I believe in and what I fight for, and that's a book which. It's almost like a warning. It's like how grim things can get. Well, let's go back to your book now. In it, you chart the real drama from the inside of the Labour Party as the competition for leader was heating up with Jeremy Corbyn in the frame. Let's take a listen to that now. With the leadership contest already underway, at a meeting of left-wing MPs, McDonnell ruled himself out of the running and expressed his scepticism about any left-wing candidate putting themselves forward. Whoever did so, he opined, would get hammered. Privately, however, Corbyn was seriously contemplating doing so, pushed hard by his loyal, long-standing office manager, Nicolette Peterson. McDonnell was taken aback. After the meeting, he and Corbyn went for a cup of tea. When the division bell rang, calling MPs in to vote on some legislation, Corbyn drained his mug and asked, You'll run my campaign, won't you? It'll be a mistake, McDonnell shot back will be annihilated and be out for a generation. McDonnell recalls phoning me as I got off a train at Paddington Station. I shared his concerns, fearing the left would secure a derisory vote, leaving it permanently marginalised and discredited. From McDonnell's point of view, the one thing worse than not getting on the ballot paper would be to appear on the ballot paper and get smashed. As it turned out, Corbyn had got the idea in his head and wouldn't be dissuaded at which point McDonnell pledged to back him. I think it's a mistake, he told his friend, but you've made your mind up. That was This Land, the story of a movement, read and written by my guest Owen Jones. It's available to buy and download now, and there's a link in the programme notes of this episode. Let's go on to your last object, and, uh, and it's music. It's a band. Tell us about this band and why... They're the ones for you then. Well, I mean, the thing with all music is I think most of us associate music with, you know, different parts of our lives. And uh, I just started listening to the Boxer Rebellion this year as the pandemic began. <laughs> you know, there's this uh, very songs like Pull Yourself Together and and it just became the soundtrack to the pandemic and writing my book. So whenever I hear the Boxer Rebellion, poor Boxer Rebellion in a sense, I'll always remember 2020, the horror of the pandemic <laughs> and and writing this extremely painful book. I came across them this year and then for some reason they just became the soundtrack and so I suppose they helped me get through it. Hopefully there's some other music within 2020 that uh, that you associate with not being chained to your 
your laptop. Yeah. What in terms of all the bands that I've been, I've been listening to yeah. all the way through 2020? Yeah. Well, I listen to whingy indie music, don't I? Editors, keep <laughs> listening to them. Right. Falls, keep listening to them. Blossoms, they're a Stockport indie band. Named Love after, Blossoms. I mean, The Cure, because I'm a cliche. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, I mean, I do keep listening. I have listened to a lot of of extremely whingy indie music. And they're not whingy. That's harsh to say that about all of them. They're great. They're all, they're great. They're they're great, great indie bands that helped me through 2020. How do you think Jeremy Corbyn will ultimately be seen? Do you think that the anti-Semitism that he didn't do enough about quickly enough will be his legacy? No, but... I mean, obviously, it's impossible not to talk about that period without talking about anti-Semitism. You know, I, 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 wrote, I wrote I wrote about that at great length because you did, yeah. I, well, anti-Semitism's in great. You know, it's you know, it produced the worst horror in human history within living memory, but also throughout history on on left and right. You know, and and it was called uh, the socialism of fools by a German. Uh, socialist leader in the 19th century because it it would it would manifest itself as you know people talking about Jewish bankers and financiers. Anti-Semitism is the deadliest conspiracy theories devised by human by humanity, and I would say the vast majority of people in the Labour Party, of course, are not anti-Semitic, and I don't think Jeremy Corbyn's anti-Semitic either. But there is a strain of anti-Semitism which does exist on the left that's specific to the left. You know, if you're on the left, you should believe that the economy, that, that capitalism is about these grand social forces. Um, conspiracists believe it's shadowy individuals pulling strings. And that always lends itself to anti-Semitism. And there was a strand of that. And there's also another strand of people who, you know, the righteous struggle against the, as I would see it, the occupation of Palestine by the Israeli state. And that's something that I passionately believe in. There were also those who framed that in, in, anti, in very anti-Semitic ways. Uh, and people should be clear about that. What for me was lacking all the way through though was emotional empathy. I think understanding the collective trauma that's so integral to the Jewish lived experience is very, very important. And, you know, I would say the processes did improve that lots of people in the Labour Party have things to answer for because before 2018, March 2018, the party machine, which is separate from the leadership, was under the control of anti-Corbyn forces who who cases of anti-Semitism were not dealt with as they should have been then but they weren't also dealt with afterwards when they were under the control of people who supported Jeremy Corbyn. But I think there was never this big emotional appeal to the public, uh, to Jewish people uh, specifically. I think people like John McDonnell got that much better. Uh, and I think Jeremy Corbyn's sense of, understandable sense of hurt about being called a racist, anti-racism so-called to his identity, he got very distressed and was unable to to get past that and and to and to focus on... On, on reaching out to, to Jewish people, including people who voted for him, who were very upset. Was that, though, in some instances, he was compromised by some of those people being accused of uh, disgusting examples of anti-Semitism were people close to him? Well, I mean, a striking example, of course, was Ken Livingston, and they were from the same background and tradition, but he supported Ken Livingston's suspension. I remember that day because I tweeted... If, if uh, Ken Livingston isn't suspended, uh, I'm going to punch myself in the face repeatedly. And he was suspended within about an hour of going on TV and making the utterly offensive comments he did about Hitler and the Zionists. 
So he did. I mean, he did actually support action against people who were very close to him. Those processes improved, but I just don't think there was the emotional appeal that should have happened. Because I think that point is, because a lot of people go, well, what did you want to see? You know, seriously, as if Jewish people were ever going to be in any danger under Corbyn-led government. And I think the problem with, I mean, obviously I think that's clearly true, that there was no danger posed to Jewish people at all. They would never have supported a government in waiting or whatever that I thought in a million years was. But throughout history, Jews feel this sense of, well, there's a history to back it up, that at moments they feel they can look back and say they they were safe and secure and then things suddenly shifted and they had to flee. And that's happened over and over again throughout history. You know, anti-Semitism is 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 very real, and it's in, it's it's. I think people don't realize how embedded it is in in European culture as well. It's you can't have a bigotry, a form of racism that's been around for two thousand years, and it just not be embedded. I think people often think about it. Is it was like the Holocaust? It was the interwar period, and obviously that was anti-Semitism. It's most obscene. But it persists, and we've seen a massive surge in anti-Semitic hate crimes in this country, including defacing of uh, synagogues and Jewish graves and attacks on Jewish people. So you can never, you know, you should never be complacent about anti-Semitism. You should always passionately speak out against it. And I think Labour could have done could have done more. That doesn't mean I think, as I've said, they were a threat to Jewish people. But if you were Jewish and you had that history. Of course, any manifestation of anti-Semitism is going yeah. to cause you hurt. Well, I mean, and it's not your call to make. Exactly. Whether they're a threat or not. It's exactly. how people feel because of their lived experience of that. And, and if overwhelmingly, as every study shows, Jewish people did feel that hurt and upset about the Labour Party, you can't just go, well, well they're all wrong. Like, I mean, you, you know, you can't do that with racism in minorities. Um, you have to go... Oh my word! I'm just, I cannot believe you've 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 been driven to that conclusion. I've got to do everything possible to make you not feel like that. That's what your starting point should be, not a defensiveness. What's next for you, Owen? If we were speaking at the tail end of 2021, how would you like to look back on next year and say, "Oh yeah, I achieved that." <laughs> Uh, write another book. I mean, I have written this book, which needs quite a lot of amending. Uh, it's a very international book about hope and, you know, for my own well-being, writing a book about that's hopeful and optimistic would be good. Um, so that's what I'm going to do. I've just restarted this YouTube channel, which I'm going to do these documentaries. Just done one about refugees in Folkestone, which tried to centre in, hum- you know, the humanity of refugees, people who'd fled Iran and Iraq and Sudan. But I want to be involved in just giving a platform to things that I care about and people I care about and injustices I care about. So that's what I'm going to spend 2021 doing in my writing and my videos. Owen, thank you so much for it's hanging out with us today. Absolute pleasure as always. And do remember to subscribe, comment, and most importantly, spread the word about this podcast. It helps us to make more. Should you have an Alexa-enabled device, you can find us there too. One of the most prophetic works of literature, 1984 has influenced and terrified, putting the future in our hands. From politics to pop culture, the ubiquitous nature of Orwell's dystopian classic has been and will continue to be discussed for decades. It was a bright, cold day in April, and the clocks were striking 13. 
Winston Smith, his chin nuzzled into his breast in an effort to escape the vile wind, slipped quickly through the glass doors of Victory Mansions, though not quickly enough to prevent a swirl of gritty dust from entering along with him. The hallway smelt of boiled cabbage and old rag mats. At one end of it, a colored poster, too large for indoor display, had been tacked to the wall. The brand new audio edition of 1984 is available to download now.